Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. When the pandemic started at the beginning of the year, the media was heavily criticized for blowing it out of proportion. But as history will have it, the media got it right. This, however, does not come as a surprise to my guest, the presenter of Africa Business Report on BBC World News, Ms. Leratu Ambele. In a conversation with wide-ranging scope, she tells us why getting the news right is not a matter of luck, but rather it is contingent upon a tremendous amount of integrity and thorough journalism. And by that token, she tips her hat to her colleagues who are risking their lives on the front line every single day doing precisely that, ensuring that we have access to accurate news. She then invites us into her world of news reporting and even gives us a sneak peek into the production of the upcoming Africa Business Report, through which we learn how news and news reporting is currently changing and will continue to change. Beyond the BBC reporter, I was humbled to encounter a very thoughtful person who is currently reflecting on the deeper implications of this pandemic on all of our lives. Lerato Mbele shares her heartfelt reflections and argues that we are being reminded that compassion and empathy have to be brought back to the core of the human experience. But first, Lerato Mbele tells us why the journey to success is never linear. Her own path to becoming a journalist was a long winding road. Thankfully, she's able to connect the dots from her early childhood growing up in apartheid South Africa to her interest in politics and policy making as a teenager to the influence of her parents and her family on her life and her deep admiration for strong female news anchors who in one way or the other have inspired her to become the media personality we are about to discover. My name is Veda Sanasi and welcome to yet another episode of In The Room. Hi Lerato, how are you? Hi, Vida. I'm very well, thank you. Coping under the circumstances. It so, hasn't been as bad as I thought, this lockdown. Uh, where, where are you calling us from? Uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, in my home. Uh, South Africa, and I'm calling you at a moment where South Africa has seen the national lockdown being extended mm-hmm. by an additional two weeks. So what was meant to be a three-week lockdown is now a five-week lockdown. And I mm-hmm. believe we are just completing week two. Mm-hmm. So we've still got a while to go. Good call, extending the lockdown? I think so, because from my understanding, the South African officials need to get a better picture mm-hmm. of how widespread the infections are, um, where the hotspots in particular are in a big mm-hmm. country such as South Africa, and then also to really uh, beef up the healthcare Uh, infrastructure around it because we know that um, many people, everybody's susceptible to COVID-19, but the elderly in particular are the most uh, vulnerable because they already have uh, fragile immune systems given their age. And so, um, and South Africa being in the South, um, Southern Hemisphere means that um, we're going into a fairly cool winter season. It's colder than in other parts of the African continent. We're in autumn right now, which then actually throws a spanner in the works because then 
it's likely that more people will invariably catch the flu because of the seasonal change and all the other dynamics about a, um, a disease that spreads very, very quickly through very simple things such as sneezing, touching and coughing. So I think it's really about containing people in the climatic shifts um, so that the healthcare system can absorb them if and when the time comes. I, with your permission, I'd like to go back to Lerata the child, mm, if you don't mind telling precocious. us a little bit. She was precocious. Tell us more about this precocious child. Um, what was she up so, to? How did she grow up? Yeah. What were her dreams? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's very simple, actually. Um, you, should, you should have called my mother for this one. So I think I am uh, the last born child with an older brother and the age gap is almost eight years. And because of what was happening in South Africa when I was growing up in the 1980s, um, there was a state of emergency in the country. The country was still under apartheid rule, uh, which is basically institutionalized racism and spatial segregation and economic segregation as well. And there was resistance and defiance from the black masses in the country. So it was, a, uh, it was a pretty volatile time to be raising a child in South Africa. So my brother was sent to boarding school in a neighboring state to keep him safe and um, in a structured academic environment so that he could continue with his schooling. I stayed home with my parents because I was not even an adolescent. I was a, I was a little girl. And I got to see that violence. I remember, you know, being on a school bus and our bus got stoned uh, and petrol bombed because we had gone to school when there was a state, what, what do they call it? A stay away, a mass boycott, a consumer boycott, and everybody's not supposed to go to work or school. And um, it was a very frightening incident. I remember you're a six-year-old kid and here are these Molotov cocktails coming through the windscreen of the bus. The glass is shattering. All these little children with their milk teeth out, uh, squatting on the floor, lying on the floor for cover. There are no cell phones, so you can't phone your mother hysterically. You just hope you're going to make it through the barricades home. And then you've got to ask your parents, what's going on? Why did that happen to me as a little girl and to my peers as well? And so unwittingly, you develop a kind of a consciousness simply because the environment around you is forcing you as a child to ask questions about a big bad world that your parents were hoping they could shelter you from for as long as is possible. But the politics of the day just didn't allow it to happen. And also because I was left alone at home with them, I didn't have a sibling I could defer to and say, why don't you explain X, Y, and Z? So I had to ask them directly. And if it didn't make sense to me, I would argue with them, you know, is that I do have white friends. Why can't I go and visit my white friends at their home? Why does the law tell me where I can and cannot go? And why can't she visit me at home? And when eventually you do manage to get a pass to visit the suburb that is predominantly white, you realize that her home is very different to your home. She's got a swimming pool. You barely have a back garden. 
what's going on? But you're all in the same class at school, <laughs> you know? And so a little bit, you start to see in material terms what inequality looks like, is that I grew up in a black neighborhood. It has these aesthetics, and she grows up in a white neighborhood. It has a different aesthetic, and it's purely because you're black. It can't be anything else. You're the daughter of professional parents, and so is she. You hear the chatter of adults around you. It doesn't really make sense. So you're, you're curious. And I was one of those children who didn't accept what I was told. I asked and I kept on asking until you gave me a satisfactory answer. But I'm grateful to my parents for that because whereas other parents would have seen that as downright rude and petulant for a little girl, especially who doesn't know her place, my parents thought it was okay to be curious and to challenge um, their authority and to challenge the status quo. They were also very strict, right? So by the time I was a teenager, challenging their authority uh, meant that there were very strict curfews. You will do as you're told. Boys will not be visiting. Boys will not be calling. And if you don't like it, you get shipped off to boarding school. So I got shipped off to boarding school. So my, you know, my parents were true to their word as disciplinarians. But just in terms of curiosity and rationalizing your world, my parents were incredibly open-minded. Ask. And if we don't know, here's a whole library of books and encyclopedias. Let's try to find the answer for you. But you must keep asking until you're satisfied. And um, that's, you know, it's that, kind of, it's that kind of democracy in the home in which I was raised. And so um, maybe even journalism became a natural progression because I've always been curious about the world I lived in. It never made sense to me as a woman in South Africa that has so many complex variables to it. Um, but I was never told to just accept the world as I see it. And I don't. And then growing up, um, your choice to go study politics and international mm -hmm. relations um, and varsity, was that something that, um, you know, was just like a natural um, decision and choice or, or was it something that somebody influenced you on or um, how did that come about? So my parents had absolutely um, no influence over my decision. Uh, my father did try to encourage me to go to business school, but I wasn't interested. And my mother implored on him to let the girl live her life. It's her life. We just need to support her. My father kind of had the attitude, I'm paying for it, so I need to see a return on my investment. And I don't see a social science humanities graduate as somebody who's going to move the world. Um, but my father is very proud of me today. I, I, must, I must clarify that. He sees that, okay, it's fine. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to have a business and a degree in commerce to move the world. So I was laissez-faire and I was, let, I was allowed to go to university and do what I thought were in the realm of my interests. Um, the only condition was you can't fail. My parents were very clear about that. Uh, university education is an expensive education. So if you're going there and you're not sure what you're doing, you need to recalibrate. But you don't get to repeat a year and do another course. It doesn't work like that. These are three or four year structured degrees. That's the time you need to do it. So, so, so there's, you know, there's still parameters in which you operate. But as a child, I'd often watch the news with my father. And I'd watch uh, CBS News, American News, 
and 60 minutes. And I wouldn't understand what was going on in the world. And it was a world dominated by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And I quite liked that there was this really feisty woman, you know, who was able to challenge the authority of men. So I, uh, I quite like watching the news and watching these women sort of rule the world. It was also a world where there was Indira Gandhi and she was able to contest several elections in India. There was a spate of violence around many of those elections, but still a woman, you know, uh, came out triumphant in a lot of those situations. Benazia Bhutto entering politics. So politics looked a very appealing world to me because it didn't seem, it didn't seem from my, from the prism of my lens to be a place where women are stifled. In fact, it seemed to be a place where women can challenge what they don't like about the world, contest an election and do something about it. And so I developed an interest in news and current affairs because of those optics. And on 60 Minutes in particular, which was a really great uh, current affairs show, you started to see the emergence of women correspondents and uh, journalists. So at the time, there was Connie Chung. I loved her, you know. Um, in a different genre um, was Diane Sawyer moving into news, current affairs type um, talk shows, Oprah Winfrey as a black woman. So it just looked the place where I could actualize and speak my mind and challenge authority and be credible and learn and grow. And so I went into the humanities, not with the express intention of becoming a news journalist, but I guess it had looked so attractive to me that when I got a job in the media, I forgot about everything else because I thought, yeah, actually, I could become like Oprah or could become like Connie Chung or Diane Sawyer and, um, you know, make waves. It's interesting how um, media inspired you to study politics, which then took you back to have a career. Back to the media. I to think that's media. a great way of putting it. I think that's a fantastic way. It was a symbiosis. Mm. I didn't go into study politics with the intention of getting into the media, but watching the media, I learned a lot about politics. And then here I am. For somebody who obviously travels a lot for work, mm. this must be hard. Are you, are you getting any sort of cabin fever at the moment? How are you dealing with that? Mm. Extremely, a lot. You know, I said to you, I did, I did a sneaky thing the other day. I used my media pass and I drove to my mother's house just to make sure she's okay. Yes, it's because I'm the caring daughter, but it's actually because I needed fresh air. I needed to breathe. Yeah. Um, and I needed to experience something um, different. So um, I had a Zoom call with our team um, yesterday. And I really got a sense that we just all want to get up and go. We want to get back out there because we don't know how to keep calm. We don't know how to just be in the moment, you know, take some time, smell the roses, uh, sip a cup of coffee. It's, it's really foreign to, uh, for, to international journalists whose lives are dictated by global phenomenon and events and are constantly moving from one geography and time zone to another. So this, this 
has been really, really an important time of structuring the mind, centering your thoughts, healing the body, finding some rest. You know, I find that I'm sleeping. It's, 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 it's not something that is normal for me to do, to sleep a full seven hour night. And um, here we are doing it. And I can tell you that when people say we are walking into a new normal, I think this is what they mean is that Compassion has to come back into the workplace. Mm -hmm. Pacing yourself has to be the tempo of the new workplace. Um, letting people decompress, not just around annual holidays, but yeah. in the middle of major assignments, I think is going to be um, a new way of doing things because it's true what they say. Mind, body, and soul need to align. And this time has really given us the opportunity to do so, albeit forcibly, but it's happened. Do you sense that you are at the cusp of almost a lifestyle change right now because of these realizations that you're having? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm a journalist for the BBC, so it's really a get-up-and-go, uh, keep-moving-mobile world. But a lot of my friends are investment bankers um, and doctors, and generally their lives are also um, very busy. Their schedules are demanding. Um, and... I think when you are surrounded by high achievers, and I say that, you know, in inverted commas, but when you're surrounded by people who are driven, they don't know how to manage a moment of silence because they believe the noise, the busyness mm, is part of the normal. validation yeah. of the work that they're doing, yeah. you know? And so everybody I find is struggling with the silence, is struggling with not being able to complete their tasks outside of the office, um, is struggling with mothering and fathering their children 24-7. And it turns out the kids are smarter than most people because the, a lot of the parents who are having to do homeschooling and the online courses. They don't quite understand the courses. <laughs> and the kids do. Yeah. So I think, it's, I think it's been illuminating for a lot of us in different spheres. Yeah. And ultimately, like I'm saying, these are transactors These are deal makers. These are executives. These are CEOs who have to go back into the workplace a few weeks from now and say, what did I learn? And what I'm finding encouraging is many of them are saying, I've learned that it's okay for one of my top uh, team to step back a little bit and go and be a mom or go and be a dad or go and be a wife and a partner for a few days. It, you know, the world's not going to fall apart. Do, do, you think, do you think this realization will sustain um, or is it just going to last for a few days? Because once we step back into the real world, I'm also using quotes right now, and, and the, the real pressures of the world kind of, you know, start hitting us, the, the pressures to, you know, make a profit and, and start making revenue because most of these guys are really seriously affected right now, right? So yeah. do, do you think that realization, that empathy and compassion should come back to the core Do you think that's going to endure? So I'm not a soothsayer. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a guru. I'm not a sangoma, as the South Africans would say. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I can only hope, Vida, that when we go back, the empathy quotient stays. Mm -hmm. I definitely do agree that uh, once we go back, especially because markets are in turmoil and economies are in deep recession, there's going to be pressure to ramp up production, to hit the ground running, to get things going, to see if you can push up volume, sales, 
um, get as many meetings as possible, start getting deals into the pipeline. So I think the frenetic pace of work is going to be just that, frenetic. But I'm hoping the principles, which is what empathy is, will be infused into it. So I think people are going back to an even busier uh, workflow because we've got to catch up all this lost time. But I think the emotional intelligence that managers and executives need, I'm hoping that will set in where quickly you will look around the room and you'll recognize when your team are burning out and you'll say, okay, time out, you know, and you will see that there is a dad who really wants to go to a school play and you'll say, go ahead and do it, you know, for as long as you make up the time, you know, and, and when somebody says, I'd like to, you know, leave the office a little bit early today for a session of Bikram yoga, for as long as it's not costing the team anything in terms of productivity, why not? So I think, you know, we used to talk about EQ, but now we really have to apply yeah. EQ. And I'm hoping yeah. that it's a world where EQ starts to balance out the IQ of what's needed in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And how's work been for you these days? I can imagine a lot has shifted. Yeah, and in an unsettling way, because actually I am part of a, a team that does a niche category of news, which is global business. And whilst there's been a, a global health pandemic, it's had dire consequences for global business, which you've seen. It's affected currencies, it's affected equities, it's affected treasury bonds, and governments are needing to talk about stimulus and redirect capital from budgets that were intended for the year 2020 into emergency support and emergency funding and social welfare. So the business aspect of news coverage continues, but the lifestyle aspect of business coverage, which is where I found myself wading into, has kind of slowed. Because the kind of business news that we started doing is the showcasing of innovation and business leadership and um, new policies and new approaches to business on the African continent and in other emerging markets. But right now, everybody's in a state of panic and it's in a state of flux. And so nobody really is seeing the, is it the wood for the trees? I think that's the saying, the wood for the trees. So... So everybody's just kind of in survival mode, and yet that creativity um, still needs to be engendered and nurtured, and that's where a lot of us come into the picture. So fortunately, the BBC didn't cancel our shows. So I'm still on air, and we're still producing, and we're still being part of the conversation, but we're the softer side of business, and I often wonder if people want to see that. People want to hear about Um, handbag accessory designers in Ghana when they're struggling with their core life or death issues, to be frank. But BBC seems to think they do. BBC seems to think that people need an outlet and people need to remember what's awaiting them at the end of this crisis. And people need to be prepared for the world that awaits them. So showcase those innovators, showcase those creatives, speak to those business leaders who have embraced a new methodology because this is a time where people can imbibe that information and maybe remember it and reflect on it after the crisis. But, you know, you do go through that, uh, those questions every day and say, 
Am I being too lighthearted in a world that's really in distress? But somehow it seems like we've, we are bringing the balance and I'm grateful for that. And right now, how are you engaging with these innovators and entrepreneurs? Is it usually through Zoom like we are doing right now? Okay, so for, for immediate news coverage, mm-hmm. you know, like as I speak to you today, we've just heard that the U.S. president is thinking about withdrawing financial support to the World Health Organization. That's news. And yeah. so the way in which that kind of issue would be covered in its immediacy would require for radio, telephone calls, for television, Zoom and Skype um, interviews. But for the lifestyle business programs, which is the category in which I fall when I'm not doing news, I think we have to think a little bit more creatively. So the hard answer is yes, but it's not quite the right answer because before the lockdowns were introduced, we'd been traveling at you know, a week before all of this happened. I just landed from Senegal and um, Ghana. And so we are still working through those things in our production pipeline. But the call we had yesterday was to say, okay, we know that we've got all these shows that are coming on stream that were filmed before all of the restrictions were introduced. What's going to happen afterwards? And this is where we've had to put on our thinking caps because we don't want a show that's filmed principally on a computer um, using you know, various communication apps and tools. So how are we going to do it? So we've decided, and this is me giving you sort of the scoop of what's coming up, to do a show on tech and innovation so that when we're using the tech and innovative tools, it, it, it feeds into the content. But actually the truth of the matter is that it's, how, it's the only way we can do it in the interim. So we're going to do a show that looks at animation, gaming, um, fintech and digital tools because a lot of those things you can film and you can experiment using your own devices. I don't know if I'm making sense to you. So I don't physically have to be on a farm Mm -hmm. and see a farmer farming his or her strawberries, which is what the uh, conventional formula is. Now I'm saying, okay, I want to speak to an animator and I want him or her to show me how they run a business um, on a, a gaming business and do the gaming using the consoles and, and the VR technology. So now I don't physically have to be with the gamer. I get a console. I plug in to the game. The gamer speaks to me from wherever he or she is in the world. We then use our own uh, virtual reality um, instruments in our studio to get deeper into the game and to move with the ebbs and flows of the game. When people are jumping off cliffs, we can jump off cliffs because we're using VR technology. That's not ordinarily how we would do it, but we're going to do it in this instance to show that there's different ways to make money through technology. There are different ways to use tech. So we're we're framing the show around technology, but we have to do it because we can't physically be in the spaces with our guests. And so the show you're going to look at, you're going to see a few weeks from now is going to be very, very uh, tech-centered, tech-oriented, fast and furious, to use the terminology, mm-hmm. but really because we have to use those instruments to uphold the restrictions. Well, looking forward to it. Um, I wanted to come back to something <laughs> you mentioned earlier. You said that 
um, it seems that you, you, um, BBC feels that people still want to hear these stories about innovation, mm. about inspirational entrepreneurs, etc. Mm. Is that is that something right now that is substantiated by the data? To the extent that the data is available in terms of viewership, in terms of what people are tuning in right now, is it is it fair to say that's the kind of of uh, of, of stories that people are, are currently gravitating mm. towards? Well, it depends which uh, viewer statistics you're using. If you look at the, if you look at BBC World News, where I work, you'll see that we have news on the hour every hour, and on the hour every hour, the content is dominated to a large extent by aspects of COVID nineteen, mm. whether it's infection numbers, or it's country by country lockdowns, or it's different treatment programs, or it's. Uh, um, healthcare funding policy, or its meetings that are taking place at the multilateral level, G20, World Bank. Uh, in the middle of the crisis is also the issue around the fall in the oil price and whether or not OPEC member states needed to cut production. So the news churn has really done justice to the coverage of a range of issues related to the novel coronavirus, from the medical and healthcare perspective to the impact on global business to the impact on daily lives. You even have makeshift shows, to use that term, which were established purely to tackle a whole lot of social uh, issues that are related to the spread of the coronavirus. Things such as how are people coping in the lockdown? situations. Um, what interesting things are people doing behind closed doors when they are cooped up for three to four weeks at a time? And those stories come from a range of locales, from how people survived their three-month lockdown in Wuhan, China, to how people are doing it in the individual states that have different approaches in the United States. You know, there'll, there'll be a different lockdown regimen, whether you're in New York State or Illinois or California, to, you know, how the British approached it, where the strictest of codes applied to the elderly. Um, and then there was a bit more laxity as you move down the social pyramid to what's happening on the African continent, because different countries from Rwanda to Kenya to South Africa have also taken fairly uh, varied approaches yeah. to the social and enterprise aspects of it. We've seen a lot of humanity um, surface during this time. We've seen a lot of people using this lockdown time to connect with um, their domestic helpers and gardeners and and relatives in rural areas. And then when they identify a need, there's been a little bit of crowdfunding to see if we can get food parcels that way. It's also around the Christian Easter, so there was a lot of momentum around the coverage of how the church will be interfacing with its congregants at this time. So you've seen that the content has never been short around different coping mechanisms during this time. Mental health has been an issue that's come up and has been extensively covered around a range of programs, religious, social, business, economic, and core news. So if you didn't want to um, bring in softer lifestyle programs, you didn't need to because there's sufficient user-generated content, people telling their stories behind closed doors, 
coming to the fore. But there was just a sense that there's still a place for content that's relevant, that could be about climate change, that could be about, you know, we, we, we heard about how planet Earth is replenishing itself at this time. With everybody in, indoors, the birds have started to sing again and the canals in Venice have cleared up and the Earth's atmosphere is cleaner because industry is in lockdown and so we're not seeing these pollutants and that there's been a slight improvement in um, the reduction of fossil fuels and greenhouse gases in the air. So those are not intrinsically COVID-19 related issues, but actually they are. And so those are the softer aspects of content that's coming to the fore, but somehow people are warming to it because it's telling them maybe what was wrong with the world and what's right as it evolves and emerges in the world. And it's also helping them to escape. But if you move away from just news and business journalism and you look at the numbers that are being recorded by the uh, entertainment media sites, Netflix, Showmax, um, YouTube, Apple TV, those streaming sites have just had an incredible and exponential number of downloads because it's telling you that people, when they feel a little bit overwhelmed, they want to watch a movie, they want to watch a series, they want to tune into some music, they want to do something else. And so I think the collection of all that information is telling us that people need to be informed. They're watching those press conferences uh, by world leaders. They are watching the market movements because it affects each and every one of our personal livelihoods. But they also want to delve into uncharted waters. They want to see something different. They want to hear about the beauty and the re-energization of the planet they want to hear about um, what innovators are doing. They want to escape through film and series. And they want to imagine a new reality when all of this is over. Once you get back um, on the road, whenever this is over, um, what are you expecting to see? Are you expecting to see the same inspiring stories that you've covered um, on the show or yes. do you think things are going to be different now? Completely, because the very essence of human existence is to triumph over adversity. Every single global catastrophe, whether it's the world wars, whether it's the um, you know, pro-democracy protests, whether it's issues around surviving, you know, major environmental catastrophes and fires in Australia as early as 2020. Ultimately, it's about seeing how people turn those dark situations into something truly amazing. And the reason why we are starting to see, you know, um, wonderful digital tech innovations is because at every opportunity, people are looking for a solution to a problem all the time. People are looking to make their lives better 
with every generation. People are looking to recalibrate their civic and social rights. And so the human race doesn't fall for a long time. They get up and they move on to a higher level of glory, if, if you will. And so I'm absolutely expecting that after the worst is over medically, everybody's going to want to hear about who did what. That was amazing, groundbreaking, new and fresh that emerged in the midst of this crisis. And there are going to be a lot of those stories. You know, in the, in, in the last episode I was uh, mentioning to our guests that I think because that was the first episode we did um, since the, the pandemic started. And yeah. I said, I have a feeling that from now going forward, whatever issue we are discussing anywhere in the world, there will be a pre-COVID-19 and a post-COVID-19 world. And we will be discussing yeah. these issues around you know, those two timelines. Do you feel like when you go out there again, the way you're going to tell the stories and share these stories on the report um, uh, is it going to change? Is, is the, the lens through which you, you look at those stories um, going to differ from what you were doing before? I think invariably, but I don't think fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that is that we've all been touched by COVID-19. You know, when, when, when I w- walked into 2020, I was calling it 20 plenty like everybody else. So I had great expectations for my life. And now everything is on hold. For you, for me, Absolutely. for everybody who was extremely optimistic. People have had to give up their birthdays this year, right? I'm about, I'm about to in a few days. <laughs> you know, so, so nobody is left untouched by the abnormality of the situation. So for you to walk out of um, the end of the COVID-19 crisis and say, that didn't affect me, is absolutely untrue. It absolutely affected you. What I'm hoping is that... When we've um, risen above the anxiety and maybe even the hysteria, we start to see the positives, which is I'd been on the road so long, I never had time to do home decorations. That's a positive. I'd been on the road so long, I'd never had time to do yoga, which is an exercise routine that aligns my mind with my breathing and my body. For others, it's more intrinsic. It's, as a father, I've never spent so much time with my children. And I feel really great to have done a bit of homeschooling with my child because now I realize, there's a joke in South Africa that says some dads are realizing that their kids are left-handed. They were never aware. (laughs) Now you recognize that your child is left-handed, right? Or I took up an online course. And in six weeks, I have a small diploma, but I have a new skill. So I'm hoping at the end of all of this, we are starting to see how people have been slightly more humanized, if to nothing else, to the plight of the poor around them. We've been screaming as business journalists on the BBC at the inequalities in the world. People have been making a noise in the United States about the post-2008 credit crisis world that brought about so many intergenerational debt issues and worsened 
the 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 Gini coefficient between the top one percent, the middle class, and everybody else. Well, through this crisis, that issue has really come to the fore in its most vivid form, because all of a sudden. The wealthiest people are affected by the turmoil in the markets, and their savings and their investments have declined in value. And the middle class, who kept on saying we can't carry the burden of tax in this country, well, they are on the breadline because many of them are facing retrenchment and further unemployment. When you look at the number of unemployment checks that are being applied for in the United States every single week, not month, and the people. Who've always been perhaps regarded as being on the periphery, they are now at the fore because they also have to be tested for COVID nineteen. They also have to be screened, and it turns out they also have to be fed. So all of a sudden, everybody has to care about the next person because even if you didn't care, that next person is standing with you in the grocery line. And when you look around you, you see how little your neighbour is able to afford to eat, and that's got to pull at the heartstrings. And if it's not about who can afford what to eat, it's the fact that your neighbour, who you never really cared about, if he or she sneezes on you, oops. So all of a sudden, the interdependency that we always used to say exists in humanity, and people dispute it. Has now been vividly awakened in all of us, and only a fool will ignore that in the post-COVID nineteen world. It goes back to what you were saying earlier that that the empathy and the compassion—it is imperative yes. now that that empathy and that compassion is back on the table. We just cannot afford to ignore it again. Yes, you know when people say teachers are one of the most important human resources in our society, and we scoffed at it. Now you see it because you need that teacher to help you manage the homeschooling and the online curriculum, and even you, with your incredible brain, can't quite get your head around the concepts or 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 have the verve and the personality to help your child, you know, intellectualize the stuff. So all of a sudden, you realize you never knew the teacher's name. You're going to know that name now. And the same for the nurses and the doctors, who were such underappreciated members of our society. Now, they are the source of life and death after God Himself. So they, they are the real soldiers now, right? Some are calling this the the Third World War, and they are the soldiers on the front line, fighting yes. on our behalf, as we yes. sit down on our couches and watch Netflix. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, Lord, I wanted to ask you a question about, um, you know, media in general in recent time. I think 2020 has been an interesting time um, for, for you guys because, uh, first, when it started in, in, in China, everybody was like, oh, my God, the media is going crazy about this, blowing this out of proportion. They're making a big deal out of it. Not really a big deal. Everything is going to be okay. Then it did become a global mm -hmm. pandemic. And the media is obviously still playing a very important role to inform mm. and educate, educate people across the world. Um, mm. How have you experienced that as a, as a media personality, as somebody who is in the news? And, and would you say that your, your peers in the industry have, have played their part through and through throughout the entire thing? I salute my colleagues. And more than that, I salute 
my bosses. I remember um, the deputy head of BBC Global News uh, coming out to visit all the teams within the world service um, community. So in Africa, that would be three locales, big office in Nairobi, one in Lagos, one in South Africa. And he was doing uh, a physical round robin and then going to see other teams in other parts of the world. And he came back um, with the sense that we haven't really understood the depth of the COVID-19 pandemic, that it really is a pandemic and that we need to think about what broadcasting is going to look like, certainly during the crisis. And I remember being one of those forward ones in the meeting. I was like, oh, you're over-exaggerating. Well, it turns out he wasn't. And he'd studied the data. He'd spoken to the experts. And they'd already started doing the modeling as it applies to the broadcast profession. So I'm really glad he's the executive of BBC Global because he thought about our well-being long before we thought about our own well-being. And he'd taken the time before there were curbs on um, international travel to come and reassure the staff that we have a plan, we have a program. We're not sure if we're absolutely right, but we want to make sure that we are not caught uh, unawares when the time comes. And that's what leadership is. It's, it's showing enough belief in the science around you to start to prepare your teams for what you don't even know uh, is going to happen and the depth with which it will affect you. And I think this is why we already had to start thinking about what COVID-19 related coverage might be when the time comes, you know, follow what your, what, what's happening within your locale in terms of um, messaging from the presidents, the health ministers and the various um, role players in that, in that spectrum, but also start to ask yourself what human life is going to look like. And so we were already being urged to think beyond our immediate reality and cast our eyes forward. And I think this is why rolling coverage from the BBC has been really consistent and good and in-depth and fresh each day. But then you have the news journalists who really have to cover the crisis minute by minute, day to day. Every press conference, they have to be there. Every food delivery, they have to be there. Every announcement of infections, figures, they have to be there verifying those figures with experts outside of the official realm to make sure that this is really objective data. They have to be there. Going to hear the voice of the staff on the front line, the supermarket um, workers, the food delivery drivers, the nurses, the doctors, and invariably putting themselves at, in quite close proximity to those who may or may not have contracted the virus because they are working on the issue. That's going above and beyond the call of duty. And I'll tell you, whilst we may cover the markets as business journalists, we're not even incurring the kind of risk that news journalists are having to uncover by being in and amongst field workers, factory workers, 
policymakers, nurses and doctors, even in informal settlements, as they watch community leaders try to curb the spread. They have to be on the ground in the most unglamorous of spaces to try to get the most objective viewpoint. And, you know, it takes a special kind of person to do that. And I am not that person. Mm. I really salute my colleagues in the news department. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to probe on something you mentioned earlier. It's interesting that you said that when your boss announced and mentioned and said, look, guys, this is going to be bad. We need to get ready for it. Your default was to question. It's interesting. The last guest I had on this podcast who runs a foundation out of Milan said the exact same thing. When Milan was locking down, he was in Paris and he was thinking, what's the big deal? And I think... I have to confess that I reacted the same way as well. And I know many people who did. Why do you think that is the case that so many of us, so many people found it easier to think and to assume that it's not a big deal? And I ask this question because the more I have been investigating it, and I've had some guests on the show as well, who have talked about how the science has been talking about this for a very long time. The data is there. We knew this was coming. And yet, all of us seem like <laughs> it was just a bad dream and, and, and we were just really not expecting it to happen. Why do you think that is the case? You know, Vida, I don't have the answer other than to say to err is human. We are human beings. And when you are sitting 10,000 kilometers away from Wuhan, it seems like a very far away place, a very far away problem that doesn't even speak to your reality, right? For a start, it was a pandemic in China during their winter. I live in Africa where it's summer. It was just a chalk and cheese kind of scenario. But what it does remind us is go back to that credit crisis of 2018 where people said there's no such thing as decoupling. That just because global markets are collapsing in the Western world doesn't mean the economies of the South are not going to be affected. Because the world as we know it, is interdependent. You are speaking to me from Nairobi, Kenya, in a different time zone to where I am in South Africa. And yet we are affected and afflicted by exactly the same thing because globalization is real. And global civilization is real. For as long as you are able to get on an airplane and fly to London, and I'm able to do the same thing, means you are not immunized from my problem and I am not immunized from yours. But somewhere at the back of our minds, we still believe that the world is not as interconnected as it is. And it takes a credit crisis 10 years ago and a pandemic in this era to remind us that there's no such thing as a world where others can escape. There's no such thing. Do you think this is also making a case for how, um, not even once we get through this, but as of right now, now, we really need to start paying more attention to what scientists and researchers are, are telling completely, us? Completely. And if we don't understand the science, because it's mind-boggling, it's complex, and it's overwhelming, plus it's frightening. If we don't understand, then I think we need to ask the questions of the scientists. And maybe we need to, in the journalism field, start to develop skills 
within a kind of a science journalism, digital journalism field that says, as communicators, how do you simplify the data? As communicators, how do you make the jargon more palatable and colloquial so that people don't hear big words and big concepts and switch off because it's something that their heads can't get wrapped around? We have that responsibility. I have that responsibility because science is not for the scientists. It's for all of us. And this pandemic is really driving that point home. Mm -hmm. The good news is that those people who are running news media, those bosses, they understand the science. Mm -hmm. They process the science. They believe the science. So they plan for it. You know, it's time for the rest of us at the bottom of the spectrum to do the same. Would you say that it's that same um, inability to wrap our heads around things that are complex, uh, hence our desire and tendency to, to wrap our heads around things that are easy to, to consume, to understand, that, that, that pull on our emotional cords? Would you say that's also what has contributed to the thing that has been more viral than the virus itself, which is fake news. Yeah. Is, that, is that why we default to fake news so easily? I come from a very reputable news media organization, so I don't know why people uh, peddle fake news. I, ca I can't even endeavor to answer that question. I don't know, because where I come from, you check, you double check, and you check your objectivity whilst you're doing all of that. So fake news and me, it's, it's two different worlds. However, I think the second part of your question it's kind of borderline psychology. I never studied psychology, but I'm going to venture into it. You know, uh, my mother always talks about people having a herd mentality. Perhaps your parents told you the same, you know, mm -hmm. salmon swim against the tide. And salmon is a pretty strong fish to do just that. And so in a world of normality where people want familiar, the scientists, the techies, they are the salmon swimming against the tide. They don't go with the herd because they recognize that the herd move in a particular direction because it's safe, because it's familiar. They are trying to extrapolate information about a world that is unknown, about a world that is unfamiliar. So they can't move with the rest of humanity that's looking for the safe and the familiar. They have to scenario plan the unfamiliar. So they move in the opposite direction. Eventually, we catch on. That's what makes them such special people. So perhaps all of us, no matter how smart we think we are, we always veer towards the safe and the familiar because there's safety in numbers. But actually, we need to open our minds a little bit to the unfamiliar. And it's not just science and medicine and complex things. It's even in social environments. It's, it's when we're starting to realize that the world doesn't exist in the binaries of male and female anymore. We are now beginning to speak more openly about transgender versus cisgender. And we need to be comfortable with that. Not with what we know, with what there is that we don't know. And this, this environment we're in, is really moving us in that direction where we need to stop veering towards what makes us feel safe and start opening our minds to what is new, what is different, whether it's science, whether it's digital tech, whether it's new business models, 
whether it's new racial identities, new sexual orientations, that is real. Mm-hmm. And the sooner we embrace it as part of what makes the human community diverse and beautiful, the less afraid we will become. Mm-hmm. It's no easy feat though, right? And I think we will really need a lot of guidance from people who are yes, in, in the industry that you're in. I mean, I just think about in the last month, the number of times when, you know, on our family WhatsApp group, my father would forward something and I'd say, what's your source? And the answer is my source is WhatsApp. And it's like that WhatsApp is not <laughs> a new source. You, and there's, oh, well, I but got But WhatsApp on, on in their defense, in their defense though, WhatsApp did send out a disclaimer mm-hmm. saying that they've introduced a different kind of forward icon, which is not just one arrow, but a double or a triple arrow to show you that this is something that's being re-forwarded, retweeted, repassed on. And then they even put a cap Mm -hmm. on how many times it can go forward before Mm -hmm. it perpetuates a kind of a myth. So it's not a foolproof method, but even these social media sites are starting to think a little bit about what the wanton, um, forwarding of information could do mm-hmm. to to spread fake news there was even you'll 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 notice there was even one where the russian president was allegedly unleashing lions in the streets of moscow to enforce the lockdown i mean ridiculous where in the middle of russia so north close to the arctic lions roaming the street in the middle of winter what are you talking about but people don't ask themselves those questions and so it's now falling to social media sites to start to introduce curbs disclaimers question marks that will make even the reader question it as well so um i think legally you're starting to see a little bit more responsibility creep in Mm -hmm. that's exactly my point though the point i was i'm trying to drive to which is that i could not agree more with you what you said earlier around the importance of bringing the empathy and the compassion back to the table. My worry and concern right now is that where has the critical thinking gone? Why are people not asking the basic question? Why would there be lions in the middle of winter in Moscow? (laughs) For me, it's it's simple things like this. The amount of energy that is being spent right now to debunk myths is baffling to me. When I was a kid, when you put on the TV, BBC is on, you know it's BBC, it's the news source, the news has been verified. And I feel like nowadays, yeah. because anybody who has access to a microphone and a camera puts something yeah. out there, it's news, right? Yes, I, I am happy that people are able to do that, that you know, more voices are able to be heard. But at the same time, I feel like um, w- there's something that's been lost somewhere in, in, in critically yeah. assessing what we are consuming as information. But, but I think we also have to be fair and say the reputable, credible news media is not a peddler of the fake news. Mm-hmm. And they are not the ones circulating the videos. They are not producing the videos. They don't have a signature or a, a footprint in that space. So if people are looking for credible news sources, they must go back to the conventional, traditional news source that you know is bound by various broadcast codes, regulations, and there's an ombudsman overseeing what they do. If you're going to turn a social media site 
into your new source, then um, <laughs> apply your critical thinking. Uh-huh. Apply, apply your critical thinking. You're going to need it. So what's next? Where are you headed? What are the big projects? What are the big dreams? The new adventures? Do you know, um, let me be honest with you. I, I somehow feel as though my, le- my media days are coming to an end. Are you sure you can uh, say this with tomorrow? your bosses listening to this podcast? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not saying tomorrow, uh-huh. but I think I'm moving into a space mentally where I feel all this knowledge, all these experiences, all these contacts, these encounters, they are preparing me for something else. What is that something else? I don't know. But maybe the, t- the time is near Mm-hmm. where the dreams of that little girl who thought she'd be a diplomat, perhaps the girl is starting to veer into that direction mm-hmm. because I feel as though I'm of a generation now, I'm in my early 40s, where we need to show up as policymakers. We need to show up and engender new ideas within our societies um, in different spaces, whether it's public policy in a corporate setting or politics as members and representatives of parliament or advisory work or working with humanitarian agencies or in a multilateral setting. It's time for new blood, for fresh blood, and it's time for people to bring the wealth of their experience walking, working the length and breadth of the African continent to step up. And I can feel that somewhere inside of me is a person ready to step up. And how are you leaning into that at the moment or not? I'm not. Okay. But you feel like it's coming. coming. I just feel it in my, I feel it inside of me that um, I'm asking myself the question, what does more look like? Mm -hmm. And it's not a TV camera anymore. So I should come back to interview you a few years down the line and see (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Where you land today. Well, with that, I want to say a huge thank you for your time, um, for being so generous and gracious. This has been wonderful. Um, I know that people who generally spend most of their time interviewing people don't always get a chance to, you know, be the ones responding to questions. So I hope you enjoyed this experience of having to share. I did. You know? It's, I think it's easier to ask the questions than to answer them. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would like to agree with that. Um, yes. But thank you so much. Um, I really thank appreciate you. your time. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, I look forward to listening to other podcasts to learn from our peers yeah. in the room. All right. Much appreciated. All right. Thank, thank you very you so much. much. Take care of yourself. Take care. Till the next Bye-bye. time. Bye-bye. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Join us next time in The Room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.